And dear Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning and we offer this day to you. And Lord, we offer ourselves to you as well. We acknowledge, Lord, the fact that we struggle this side of glory with the remnants of our indwelling sin. We acknowledge the fact, Lord, that inwardly we groan, Lord, um, awaiting that day of our glorification. And yet, Lord, we are filled with hope because of Christ, because of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done because you took upon yourself the wrath that we deserve. You were punished in our place, bruised for our, crushed for our iniquity. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you who began the work will complete the work in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you lead us through valleys. You take us, Lord, into and through and out of the valleys that life has to offer. And along the way, Lord, you make us to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You grant to us wisdom and insight. We thank you, Lord, that the work that has begun will come to completion. And that, Lord, we are in your grip, in your hand, and there is no one there is nothing that can snatch us out. We come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus and in faith in him alone. You alone are our rock. You are our comfort. You are our refuge, our shepherd. You are the gate and we enter through you, Lord. Um, the light of the world who has lit up our path and given us the ability, Lord, to see ahead of us, Lord, we thank you, Lord, just for your grace, giving to us your word and the church and leaders in the body, gifted, uh, gifted teachers, and just giving to us one another, Lord. What a source of great encouragement, Lord, that we have uh, before us by your grace. Lord, as we work our way through Pilgrim's Progress, Lord, and as we think about uh, this wonderful work by John Bunyan, we ask, Lord, your blessing upon our time um, that you would help us to hear and to receive and to see all of what you might have for us um, this morning. Uh, we lay these things at your feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so we continue in Pilgrim's Progress. I've subtitled today's lesson, Our Journey Takes Us Through Valleys. Our journey takes us through valleys. And as I was reading through the various sections here, the chapters, um, I was reminded of a number of passages, one of which is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I'll get back to that in a moment, but I would want to present that as, as perhaps a theme passage for the lesson today. Um, but let's begin then with a review uh, review. Having fled the city of destruction, Christian sets out on a journey to the celestial city. We know this. Along the way, he encounters many challenges in the form of persons as well as situations that would hinder and even prevent him from achieving the goal. But Christian derives much encouragement along the way as he holds to God's word and the gospel truths contained therein. Additionally, encouragement comes from others who are on the same journey. In the last lesson from last week, we were reminded of the value of the church, fellow believers, uh, as well as the spiritual gifts that such believers possess, all of which are designed by God for our strengthening, our growth, our encouragement. Um, in the last chapter, uh, we read about how Christian enters the armory before descending into the Valley of Humiliation. And so today we're going to cover chapters 51 through 58. Uh, in reading through these chapters, as I uh, indicated before, I was reminded of John's epistle, especially chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 
And I believe this section connects with what we're going to be seeing in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, in, in that section, he provides insight regarding the progression towards spiritual maturity. In that passage, John references spiritual children, spiritual young men, and spiritual fathers in the faith. The spiritual children are young in the faith. Their knowledge of God and experience in the Christian life is limited. They know their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. They have entered the experience of being rightly related to God the Father as a result of their sins being forgiven through the sacrifice of God the Son on Calvary's cross. And John then references spiritual fathers before backing up to the young men. John declares that the fathers know him who has been from the beginning. And that's exactly what he says two times in both addresses of the fathers. You know him who has been from the beginning. The fathers in the faith are advanced in their life experiences as well as their knowledge of who God is. They do not just know that their sins are forgiven. And I don't mean that, you know, that's all that they know or that that's like, like that's not a big thing. It's a big deal. They do know that their sins are forgiven, uh, but they don't just know that, okay? Uh, their sins being forgiven as a result of a merciful God sending his son to die for them. Their view of God is magnified. They have a big view of who their God is. They know him who has been from the beginning. They see their God as the eternal one who created all things for his glory, the fathers of the faith are those who have experienced much in their lives and are able to look back and recognize with retrospective clarity the great works of God in their lives. They have stories to tell and they are a blessing to the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that we need fathers in the faith. We need fathers in the faith to step up and to offer their wisdom to those that are younger in the Lord. Uh, they have much to offer. I believe John Bunyan wrote the allegory of Pilgrim's Progress from the vantage point of being a father in the faith. John's pattern, going back to the, um, the apostle, is to address children and fathers prior to young men what we discern from John's thoughts regarding young men is helpful, very helpful, I believe. They are described in John's second reference to them as being strong young men. Why does John conclude that they are strong? That is a question that is begged to be answered. Why does he conclude they are strong? What are the factors leading to their strength? And John tells us, God's chosen instruments leading to the young men being strong in the faith are the devil and the word of God. God uses satanic attack to strengthen his people when they wield the sword of the spirit in such battles. Again, he says you are strong because you have overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in you. So I want us to understand this progression towards spiritual maturity. And as we work our way through these sections today, we will see how God uses these instruments to bring about strength in our lives. And as John Bunyan provides a picture of satanic attack, um, we come to chapter 51, confronted by Apollyon. Confronted by Apollyon. Christian is in the valley of humiliation, where having gone, quote, a little way, espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him, Apollyon. And Christian began to be afraid. And Christian thought about turning back, but concluded such a choice would result in greater danger, allowing the evil one to more easily pierce him with his darts as his backside would have been exposed with no armor on. Thus, Christian resolved to stand his ground. And so Christian continues on and Apollyon meets him. He is depicted as a monster who was hideous to behold. The monster was full of pride 
And Apollyon, the monster, engages Christian in a conversation. Whence come you? And whither are you bound? To where are you going? I am from the city of destruction, which is uh, the place of all evil. And I am going to the city of Zion. Apollyon responds, by this I perceive you are one of my subjects. For all that country is mine, and I am the prince and God of it. How is it then that you have run away from your king? Were it not that I hope you may do me more service, I would strike you now at one blow to the ground. It's almost as if he is presenting himself as merciful and kind. He's a liar. The dialogue that John Bunyan presents continues, and such dialogue offers several lessons on spiritual warfare. But before we address those lessons, let us not lose sight of the fact there is a devil. There is a devil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. There is a devil, he is a wicked being who desires to destroy us. And so consider the many ploys of the devil as presented in Christian's encounter with Apollyon. Number one, he tries to make sin look promising, prosperous, and alluring. He would have us sell our souls to sin rather than to yield to the Savior, and he will pull no punches in his effort to accomplish that goal. He would have us think sin yields greater reward than Christ. Satan employs the same strategy today as he did when with Eve in the garden. He tempts us with forbidden fruit that brings forth death. He would also have us believe his desire for our good surpasses that of the Lord. Apollyon, the devil, tells Christian he is willing to pass by all if Christian would but return to where he belongs. All will be well. I will forgive you. You'll be at a happier place. Number two, as we consider the poise of the devil, he points to the apostasy and hypocrisy of others. Apollyon declares, but it is ordinary for those who have professed themselves as servants after a while to give him the slip, to give Christ the slip, to depart from him and return again to me. Do you so too and all shall be well. Apollyon wants Christian to identify with others who ended up deserting Christ. And this, in part, is why it can be at times so discouraging when we see professing believers and even leaders of the church who by and by fall away from the faith. It is destructive, it is saddening, it is heartbreaking, and it is cause for some to turn back as well. Apollyon wants Christian then to think he is already on his way to desertion, And such an accusation is befitting of the one who is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. Well, number three, he points to the trials and hardships of following Christ. The devil would want for us to focus our attention on how hard it is in an effort to discourage us from the path that we should and must take. Apollyon tells Christian, consider his servants come to an ill end. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths. Apollyon goes on to say, but as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered, either by power or by fraud, those that have faithfully served me from him and his, though taken by them, and so I will deliver you. As if we need to be protected from Christ and the church and the word of God. And brothers and sisters, we see this happening in our world today as well, don't we? I have been in counseling situations, for example, in which folks have told me that their secular counselor warned them of coming to a Bible counselor for help because that is a place of, uh, it it, it won't go well with them. It'll hurt them. Um, It'll, it'll, uh, cause them to think thoughts that would actually result in their 
demise. Um, and so, the devil would have us fear the persecution that comes from following Christ and con us into thinking it better to avoid such suffering by submitting to him. In this, the devil desires us to dream him, to deem him our deliverer. And the Christian responds with an understanding that God, and I love his response, this is just great. Um, he responds with this understanding that God allows trials to prove the believer's love. And Christian thinks of the glory of suffering for the sake of the Savior, and Christian remains confident in the return of Christ and the glory that will follow. It is extremely important that we do have a decently developed theology of suffering, understanding what the Scripture teaches regarding the suffering of the saints of God. Okay, God does not promise us a life of ease and comfort. He does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity, contrary to what false teachers out there would have us to believe. But he does promise that he will be with us through thick and thin, and he will lead us all the way to the celestial city, and we will get to the destination. Come hell or high water, we will get there. He promises to be with us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And we've got Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David the psalmist says, Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There is no guarantee, there is no promise that we will, we will have a life of ease and comfort this side of glory. But there is the promise that if we remain faithful to him, that we will end up in glory. And that is what we look forward to. That represents the longing of our heart. And nothing else can satisfy. Number four, considering again Satan's efforts to bring down the believer, he points to Christians' own failings and sin. Apollyon gets very personal in his attack of Christians. Listen to what he says. You have already been unfaithful to him. You have already blown it. And how do you think to receive wages of him? You think he's going to reward you, you worthless one? Uh, you did faint at first setting out when you were almost choked at the gulf of despond. You did attempt wrong ways to be rid of your burden, whereas you should have stayed till your prince had taken it off, implied that the prince has yet to take it off. You did sinfully sleep and lose your choice thing. Um, you departed from the scriptures. You lost the Bible at hand. Uh, you were also almost persuaded to go back at the side of the lions. Again, the accuser of the brethren would, have, would hurl his accusations against you in order to discourage you. That's part of his strategy. That's part of his approach. Number five, he attacks Christians' motives for following Christ. He says, and when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you are inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that you say and do. Basically, the bottom line, the accuser would have us to think ourselves to be absolutely worthless and unworthy of being saved, which in fact is true, <laughs> right? And, and we'll get to this in a moment, okay? One of my favorite parts here is coming up, and if you've read it, you probably already know. The devil accuses Christian of pride, telling him he does everything for the purpose of drawing attention to himself. And Christian responds to the devil's accusations with these remarkable words. And here it is. All this is true. And much more which you have left out. You ain't telling me anything new, devil. You can accuse me all you want. And I will stand here before you and I will say those things are true. I am unworthy, I am vile, I am wretched, I deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation. I stand here before you, I make no excuses for myself. If I get what I deserve, it would be hell and destruction forever and ever. And you know what? Let me add this to the discussion. There is way more that you, have, you haven't even brought up that you could say against me. All this is true and much more which you have left out, but... The prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these infirmities possessed me in your country, for there I sucked them in, 
And I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. You get the sense that he is um, very mindful of the fact that as a result of being in your city, um, I've been influenced by these things and I continue on to struggle with the remnants of these indwelling sins that I have been born with. But he hopes in the mercy of God. Therein is his strength. Therein is his consolation, his confidence. I know that Christ, for his name's sake, bled his blood for sinners. And the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, of whom I am the foremost. And so take that, receive that, embrace it. Well, consider what Christian does to resist the devil. We've already touched upon it, but let's, let's get into this. Number one, Christian stands his ground. When he sees the enemy approach, he rejects the temptation to turn back, knowing that such a move will expose him to attack. Uh, we must not cower in the face of attack. We must stand firm. We must resolve to continue the path to glory, whatever that path may have before us. Uh, Peter the apostle knew from experience that the devil would seek to sift God's people. Peter had once with good intent spoke against the will and word of God. Peter then received a rebuke from the Lord. Get thou behind me, Satan. And now in his letter to scattered believers, Peter addresses the topic of suffering, unjust suffering, suffering for the sake of Christ, uh, Peter knows the devil seeks to devour, and he instructs his readers. Listen to what he says. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. This is what Christian does. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Stand firm, resist the devil, the scripture tells us, and he will ultimately flee from us. Number two, in terms of his um, resistance to the devil, he speaks most often of the king. He's focused. Set your mind on things above your crisis. Set your heart on him and him alone. Look to him. So he focuses his attention on the king, not himself. He does not draw attention to himself or the struggles he faces. Instead, he focuses on Christ alone. And here's some of the words that flow from the lips of Christian. But I have let myself to another, even to the king of princes. I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. I count the prince under whose banner now I stand is able to absolve me. I like his service his wages, his servants, his government, his company and country. I am his servant and I will follow him. Clearly he was focused on Christ and thereby had strength to stand firm. If, if Christians so often spoke of the king, so should we. We should be skilled at preaching gospel truth to ourselves as well as to one another. I have personally found and the pastors here at Cornerstone have found in counseling that our greatest weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ is proclaimed, strength can be found. When the devil harasses my brethren about their past, I remind my brethren of Christ and his plan for their future. The hope of who Christ is and what he is making us to be has power to undermine the attacks of the devil. Uh, number three, Christian owns his sin and he rests in the mercy of his king. Adam blamed God, Eve blamed the devil, but Christian takes full ownership over his own sin and such ownership reminds us of King David where after finally being confronted by Nathan the prophet, he declares in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, the greatest the greatest section of scripture regarding the doctrine of biblical repentance. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness 
of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is a grace from God that David's heart was open to such a confession. He says, against thee, thee only, I have sinned, and I have done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was a sinner from the day of my conception. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. I know this. And in the hidden part thou wilt make me to know wisdom. I have trust in this. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David acknowledges his sin, confesses his sin. And then by and by he gets to the point, and I think it's Psalm 32 where he says, um, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. He talks about when I kept silent, I wasted away, but then I confessed, and you did forgive the guilt of my iniquity. David offers no excuses. He takes ownership. And I love how Christian, after being led up by the devil, declares, again, all this is true. And much more that you have left out. We need not fear confessing. We need not fear acknowledging our depravity and our dealings with um, our inner depravity, uh, inward sin. Uh, we can bring those things straight to the cross. He knows it all. There's nothing hidden from him. And we can, with total openness, honesty, and transparency, lay ourselves at the foot of the cross. And we can say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And his response every single time will be forgiven. Forgiven. The price has been paid. We will receive from him friendly reminders of how it is that we are okay in Christ that in him we are complete, and that he has taken our sin, he has cast it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers our sins against us no more. We will be reminded by the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been washed white as snow and that we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as if we have never sinned. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ will say to us if we but repent of our sin and come to him in full confession. It will be nothing but a mountain of mercy a tidal wave of grace that will flood our lives and conquer our souls. And we can hope in that. We can hope in him. Thus, Christian is in the valley of humiliation when he encounters Apollyon. And there is an exchange of words, but there is more. And this takes us to chapter 52, his battle with Apollyon. The battle with Apollyon. Uh, whereas before Apollyon engaged Christian in a verbal battle, now the battle becomes physical. Apollyon breaks out in a grievous rage. He hates to hear um, gospel truth being proclaimed by the saints of God. And so he responds in a grievous rage saying, I am an enemy to the prince. I hate his person, his laws and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand you. And Christian responds, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Apollyon responds with a warning, prepare yourself to die. Then Apollyon threw a flaming dart at his breast. And a Christian deflected the dart with a shield, but Apollyon followed up with a flurry of darts as thick as hail. And such a battle was fierce and lasted a lengthy time uh, above half a day. And Christian was almost quite spent, and he grew weaker and weaker. Then Apollyon goes in for the kill. He wrestles Christian to the ground. Christian's sword fell from his hand. Then Apollyon, with much confidence, almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But just as Christian was on the verge of death, he laid hold of his sword, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The battle is described as unimaginable. Apollyon is a hideous and fearful foe. The Christian fought. Uh, and Christian fought with sighs and groanings. At the end, Christian with sword and shield prevailed. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith. Faith in Christ, trust in God. 
The scene ends with a hand coming to Christian with some leaves from the tree of life that were applied to his wounds for immediate healing. Christian then sat to eat bread and drink from the bottle that had been given to him previously. And so in this scene, we learn, number one, Satan is a fearful foe not to be trifled with. He desires our death and he will at times attack. His attack at times is relentless. We read, Apollyon therefore followed his work amain. He came with force and fury. He does not relent in his attack. No mercy, no compassion with the devil. Number two, Satan knows well enough to go after our heart, the seat of our intellect, emotions, and will. He will attack in any way he can in any part of our person as he sees fit, um, as he determines would be the best approach to bring about our demise. If he can but cast a shadow on our love for the Lord, he does well. Apollyon's first arrow was aimed at Christian's heart, but with shield and sword he fought back. Three, we do well to fight back with faith, shield, and sword, God's word. When counseling, I'm always seeking to build faith in the counselee by way of presenting a big view of who God is. And I also seek to instill God's word. I try to drill God's word into the heart and mind of the counselee, knowing that such weapons are essential if one is to gain ground in the Christian battle. Number four, we should not be surprised when in the valley of humiliation we suffer spiritual attack from the devil. But remember that Satan's attack is God's tool for our strengthening. Number five, when tempted to give up, don't. Don't. Never surrender unless you are surrendering yourself to the Savior. Never give in. Never stop in your fight. Press on, dear saint. Christian thought about turning back, but he chose not to. He engaged the battle, experienced victory, and ended up with a thankful heart singing praise to the Lord. And so Christian made his way successfully through the valley of humiliation. But another valley awaits. And we see this in the following chapter, 53, the valley of the shadow of death. Poor guy doesn't seem to catch a break, does he? It's like from one valley right to the next. The allegory brings us immediately to the valley of the shadow of death. The text says, and Christian must needs go through it because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. Now this valley is a very solitary place. Bunyan quotes Jeremiah the prophet in his effort to describe the valley. A wilderness, a land of deserts and of pits, a land of drought and of the shadow of death, a land that no man but a Christian passed through and where no man dwelt. This valley is worse than the previous. When Christian comes to the border, he is met by two men. The two men brought an evil report of the good land. They urged Christian to go back if either life or peace is prized. We are not living for life as the earth, as the world would give to us, nor are we living for the peace that the world has to offer. There is the ultimate life in Christ and the ultimate peace with him that is our prize. The men explained that when they saw the danger in the valley, they returned in haste. They described the valley with the following words, dark as pitch, hobgoblins, satyrs, and dragons of the pit, continual howling and yelling, unutterable misery, affliction. Over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death doth always spread its wings over it, dreadful and without order. These are some of the descriptions of that valley. The Christian nevertheless was determined to pass through the valley as it was the only way to the celestial city. But Christian journeyed with his sword drawn in his hand for fear lest he should be assaulted. On the right of the valley was a very deep ditch into which blind have led the blind in all ages. On the left was a very dangerous quag which had no bottom upon which a falling man can stand on. Into that quag King David once did fall and had no doubt therein been smothered had not he that is able to pluck him out. And the pathway was very narrow. The danger of falling to the left or to the right was great. And Christian, the text tells us, sighed bitterly, for besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway here was so dark and oft times when he lift up his foot to set forward, he knew not where or upon what he should set it next. 
The valley represents the struggles and oppression we face in our pilgrimage when we can no longer see the light of the gospel. Truth is shrouded in darkness. Temptation and sin threaten to cast us down. Lesson one, believers may be confronted by others who will seek to deter us from the path we must take. Such folks walk by sight, not by faith. The dangers they see appear greater than the God they profess. Thus they turn back and would encourage others to turn back as well. But Christian had encouraged such discouraging folks before and resisted. And here again, he's encouraged. He is encouraged to turn back, but he was resolved not to do so. He would not listen to those two men. Number two, believers may go through seasons where they struggle and even fail to see the light of the gospel. There are times in our Christian walk where we struggle to lay hold of the gospel truths. You know, we might see it or believe it intellectually, but in our souls we struggle to believe it to be true for us. And so we should not be surprised when saints struggle with laying hold of gospel truth. Such struggles are real but can be overcome when we relentlessly minister the truth of the gospel to them. Rest assured, the truth of the gospel will eventually shine in their hearts again if they are elect of God and if he had began the work. We can say with absolute confidence he will complete the work. Uh, Number three, believers can find themselves in situations where they are in far greater danger than they realize Right, Christian here was in far greater danger than he was aware. If we were to view the video of our lives, we would be shocked at how often the Lord brought us through dangers, toils, and snares. I often wonder at the fact that I am still alive, especially when I recall some of the things that I did before coming to faith in Christ. Stupid things, foolish things, idiotic things. And it's a wonder to me that I am alive. It's only by the grace of God he intended for me in due time to get saved and to bring me before you today teaching you something from Pilgrim's Progress. That's just an absolute wonder. Incomprehensible. Thanks, bro. Number four, believers may experience seasons in which they feel alone in their struggle. Bunyan describes the valley as a very solitary place. There are times in which saints are literally alone. There are times in which saints are surrounded by other believers, yet feel alone in their personal struggles. I have experienced times in which a personal struggle has helped me to appreciate the struggles of others in retrospect. Um, I may have been with another believer in his struggle while he faced it, but not until I later faced the struggle myself was I able to better empathize. I look back and I think I could have been uh, more with another believer in their struggle. What I mean by that, I could have empathized better. I I, I remember, for example, um, counseling a couple and and the wife had experienced um, a number of miscarriages. And I tried to be as empathetic and as understanding and as gracious and try to minister, you know. But it wasn't until my wife and I lost our, you know, fifth child through a miscarriage that I, in retrospect, looked back and I grieved for the mother. You know, many of you know that in, recently, over the course of the last four or five months, um, you know, my family has been in a difficult situation, my dad having... Um, had a stroke and him being in the home with us and you know there's been some ups and downs along the way and um, my ability to empathize with people who have cared for their parents has shot through the roof now I, I see them more so as my heroes than I did five months ago and that's what the Lord will do right uh, he will he will use these situations to help us to grow um, Number five, believers need God's word to make their way through such dark times in their lives. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need it to light up the dark path that is before us. Ephesians 6, 17 tells us that we are to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need God's word with which to do battle. 
Uh, we must learn to have faith. We must readily repent of sin and anchor our faith in the Lord. We must receive the guidance and discipline of our kind shepherd. Our path at times can be dark and uncertain, but it is God's will and purpose that we walk such paths and learn more deeply to trust in him. Though the way may be clouded and unclear, we must press on to glory. Uh, though we may not be able to see even where our next footstep will land, God is faithful and he will lead us safely home. And so we continue on in the allegory to chapter 54, Christian confounded. So he gets to the midway point of the valley of the shadow of death. He's not out of it yet. Where is located the mouth of hell? The terror of that place was so great that Christian was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. The flames and voices were frightful. Sometimes he had half a thought to go back. Then again, he thought he might be halfway through the valley. Christian remembered he had already come through a number of dangers and, and, and thought retreating might be of a greater danger, so he resolved to go on. The fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer, whispering in his ear. And he cries out with a most vehement voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord God. And as he speaks thus, the fiends come closer. Christian is described as so confounded that he did not know his own voice. Just when he was come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him, stepped up softly to him, and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. It's almost as if he's going crazy here. And Christian was experiencing the torment of his own soul when he heard a voice ahead of him. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Christian was then glad, so glad, for the following reasons. One, there are others who have journeyed through the same valley. Two, others who have journeyed through the same valley did so with the company of God. And why not I? And three, Christian thought he might catch up and have company of other believers. Lessons learned. One, the trials one faces may yield to greater trials. Just when you think you're done, there's another. Number two, we must resist the fiends who may seek to lure us into sin. Three, believers may at times be overwhelmed by the fear of judgment and we see Christians struggling with this in this scene. Four, believers may endure seasons of disillusionment, even questioning the legitimacy and sincerity of their own salvation. Number five, we do well not to neglect the weapon of prayer, and this is what Christian does. He, he resorts to the weapon of all prayer. And six, through faith in and prayer to God, we can be strengthened by God even in the most difficult situations of life, even in the most trying times, even as we battle with ourselves. Number seven, we do well to remember that the battles we face are not unique to us. It can do well to think of the battles others have fought to encourage us in our own battles. Consider the examples of those recorded in Scripture. Consider the examples of those recorded in history. Bunyan describes the valley as dark and confusing. Christian hears voices whispering blasphemies and temptations, but their source is uncertain. He becomes so confused that he begins to doubt his own testimony, and he cannot even recognize his own voice. In the valley of humiliation, the enemy was clear. Apollyon stood against him, and Christian stood his ground. But now in this valley, the enemy is unclear and clandestine. And when Christian searches for his foe, it appears to be in his own mind, maybe even himself. He is perplexed and grieved that he could be thinking such wicked thoughts. What a place to be. What a place of discouragement. What a low place to be. And yet God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God is still at work. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He will continue the work that he began. And this is all part of his plan to get, the, to, to get a saint to the place of strong young man on his way to fatherhood. So we come to section or chapter 55, the light of day, the light of day. And as we come to this chapter, Christian finds that the sun had risen. 
The allegory reads, now morning being come, he looked back, not out of desire to return, but to see by light of the day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. So he saw more perfectly the ditch that was on the one hand and the mire that was on the other and how narrow the way was which led between them both. Now was Christian affected with his deliverance from all of the dangers of a solitary way, which dangers, though he feared them more before, yet he saw them more clearly now because the light of the day made them conspicuous to him. Christian would be able to see from what he was delivered and the challenges that lie ahead as he was but halfway through this valley of the shadow of death. Lessons. Number one, the day of darkness yields to the light of day. And since light represents God's word, we are reminded that we need God's word to get us through the valley of the shadow of death. And the light of God's word reveals to us the light of the world who is Christ. The Lord Jesus is our greatest need as we make our way through difficult days. Number two, believers often see in retrospect much of what the Lord brought them through. A Christian was able to look back and understand with greater clarity the ways he had been protected and delivered. I recall Dr. Curtis Mitchell sharing his testimony during a class at the Los Angeles Bible Training School many years ago. I'll never forget something that he said. He said, had I known then when I answered the call to ministry all of what I would endure through to get to where I am today, I would not have done it. And then he followed up by saying, thank God that he does not reveal to us the entire plan at once. Number three, the light of day is a grace from God designed for our encouragement and instruction. Such light is welcomed as we make our way through the valley of the shadow of death. We come to 56, Pope and Pagan. I'm not going to say much here. The bottom line is that in, in Bunyan's day, paganism, for all intents and purposes, was pretty much out the door, so it really was no threat. And the Pope had become much less of a threat as the Catholic Church had, um, you know, uh, been on the receiving end of a Bible attack as a result of the Reformation, right? And so we've got the light of God's Word shining, um, which therefore rendered the Catholic Church as less of an enemy, if you would. Lessons from this, one, there are times in history when what once was a threat is a threat no longer. Number two, what may be a threat to another may not be a threat to me, okay? And so though I say that the, uh, uh, that, that the Pope and Catholicism, Catholicism was less of a threat, that doesn't mean to say it's, it is not a threat. Of course, there are countless of people who are duped by such a system into thinking they're right with God, whereby they do not even comprehend the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us come to 57, a little ascent. Christian comes to a place of higher elevation from where he could see a long distance ahead. In fact, he saw faithful, and he cried out to him that he might wait. Faithful looked behind and responded, No, I am upon my life, and the avenger of blood is behind me. So faithful, he's... He ain't going to slow down for anyone. He's going to keep his pace. And so Christian ran to catch up with faithful, and then he overtook him. It was then that Christian did vaingloriously smile. Pride comes before a fall, right? Christian did not take heed to his feet, and then he stumbled. He would need faithful's help to get up. Lessons. Number one, the Lord will give encouragement to his people along the way. The little ascent represents an opportunity for Christian to be encouraged. Number two, the encouragement the Lord provides comes in the form of fellow believers who are also on their way to the celestial city. Number three, but while there is delight in other believers, there is also the danger of spiritual pride as we compare ourselves favorably with other believers. And again, Proverbs 16, 18, pride before destruction, haughty spirit before stumbling. Number four, our stumbling and failing often requires, requires the help of a fellow believer. Christian needed the help of, of faithful to be able to get back up. He couldn't get up on his own. And such is true with us at times. We need one another. And then 58, finally, faithful's escape from destruction. 
Christian and faithful enjoy fellowship together. In their interaction, faithful tells Christian about his escape from the city of destruction. They also discuss the fate of others from the city, including pliable. Faithful comes to faith as a result of Christian's warning. Others in the city, the vast majority, if not all of them, actually rejected the warning. How sad is that? Lessons. Number one, fellowship is a blessing to be embraced and valued. Christian and faithful enjoyed sweet discourse. Number two, gospel warnings may later result in fruit being born. Christian warned folks in the city of destruction and faithful was one who heard and responded positively and acted in faith, believing. Number three, those who reject the message and fail to set out for the celestial city will be destroyed. And number four, there are those who set out for the celestial city whose conversion proves to be false. Pliable is one such example. He turned back. He turned back. And so just in summary, as we think through these sections, um, as the subtitle indicates, our journey takes us through valleys. But it is in those valleys that the Lord proves himself to be faithful to us. It is in those valleys that we need to take up the sword of faith. It is in those valleys that we need to take up the weapon of prayer. It is in those valleys that we need to remember that other saints have gone before and that we can be more than conquerors through him who gives us strength. It is in those valleys that we need to remind ourselves that we cannot quit. We cannot give up. We must press on to reach the destination. Our destination is the celestial city. God's plan for us is to bring us safely home. And we need to have all confidence in him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we could ever possibly ask or think. He is able. He is able. And he who began the work, he will complete the work. And we need to have all confidence in that. Brothers and sisters, you will be faced with others who may be struggling along the way and understand that God wishes to use you in their lives to help them on their journey as together we at Cornerstone Journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel and remember the stages along the way. It ends up in gospel glory and we are seeking to prepare one another for that day when we will see Christ face to face. Let us not waver from that goal in our own lives as well as in the lives of one another as we together seek to get to where we belong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your encouragement to us. We think about John Bunyan and he serves us as a father in the faith. He imparts to us wisdom and insight and understanding. And, and I feel as if I have barely began to scratch the surface of the wisdom that was possessed by this dear saint, this dear father in the faith. Lord, let us grow together. I pray, Lord, that you would provide Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church with increasing numbers of fathers in the faith. Let us mature, Lord. Let us be those that can speak uh, to those that are newer in the faith to encourage, to build up. Let us look for opportunities, Lord, to be an encouragement. Lord, and to come alongside the babes and the children and the young men, Lord, to the end that they would be strong young men on their way to fatherhood, Lord. Those of us who are older, Lord, we know that we won't be around forever. We know, Lord, that our date with death is on the calendar. We know, Lord, that the day will come when we will meet you face to face. And Lord God, please help us to pass the baton of faith onto others and let the faith continue, Lord. Let the gospel continue to be proclaimed and let there be scores of those who would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.